Uh, great to see you, and welcome back to some of the families that were traveling and away and visiting. It's so fun. It's like the band getting back together again, so uh, we're blessed uh, that you guys are back. Let's just jump right in. If you have a Bible with you, we're going to be in James. If you need to borrow a Bible, most of you know the routine, just uh, wave at these two guys, and they'll be happy to let you borrow a Bible today. Or if you have your electronic device, you can tab over to James chapter 2 as we continue to make our way through this great letter and our series of faith that works. And really, James talking about how our faith is more than words, that it should be displayed in the things that we do and the attitudes of our heart. And uh, at times, there are some challenging things that James will bring forth. I think today is one of those times. I entitled our message this morning, taken from our verses from 1 through 4, uh, just a, a, a rephrase of what he tells us, but basically it's play no favorites. And so that's our, our title this morning, again, James chapter 2. Uh, if you're there, I'm going to invite you to stand with me in honor of God and his word. Trisha Ricketts, you're here. Yeah, your baby's coming soon. All right. James chapter 2. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. James then provides an illustration. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and then there should also come a poor man in filthy clothes, and he sets up this illustration with a question, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and you say to him, you sit here in a good place, and then you say to the poor man that you stand there, the idea is that you stand way back over there, or you sit at my footstool so I can keep an eye on you. He asks, have you not then shown partiality amongst yourselves? And notice it's a little bit of a stinging indictment, and you've become judges with evil thoughts. Pause there. Becca prayed and Don prayed, so we won't pray again. Just take a moment, say hello to someone, and, uh, and then you can have a seat, okay? I think most of us have heard the expression, uh, never judge a book by its cover. Uh, I want to find out if there's Japanese equivalent to that. Uh, there seems to be some. Uh, this is the one that aligns maybe perhaps the best. It's hito wa mikake ni yoronai. So uh, basically, both of those uh, idioms uh, basically tell us like we, we shouldn't make any assumptions or prejudge the, the value of someone or something, um, really just upon initial or superficial uh, appearance. Because often what happens, it's happened to you, it's happened to me, uh, after taking some time to, to really look, take a deeper consideration of the situation, of the person, or whatever it might be, that, that thing is much different than maybe you initially thought. Uh, you don't need to raise your hand, but anybody here guilty of making the wrong assumption based upon initial appearances or presentation? You know, it can happen. It happens in 
a lot of different ways, various circumstances. Certainly even as the idiom expresses, it can happen with a book. You see a book and you're making a judgment based upon the design of the cover. It happens with movies. It happens with uh, food when you go out, a presentation of the menu or the store in itself. It happens with places. It happens with people. It, it can even happen with animals. It happened to me with an animal, a family in our church, had invited uh, our family over, and they said, oh, by the way, we have a dog. And I'm like, okay, I, like, I love dogs. They're like, oh, we have a pit bull. I'm like, oh, a pit bull? Like, let me see a picture. And they showed me a picture. I'm like, yeah, that's okay. You can come over to our house, you know. And, and I basically, you know, prejudged. And, uh, and I thought in my mind, kind of like the cartoons, if this dog sees me, it's going to be like those giant chicken legs. That's what I'm going to look like a snack to this pit bull. Well, sure enough, I went over and Man, uh, the dog is the sweetest dog in the world. It's just a cute, sweet little pup. I had misjudged. Uh, some of you might remember Dylan. Dylan was one of our previous youth leaders here. He himself grew up in our church from elementary and middle school and high school and uh, had gone to Bible college. And some years later, God had called him back. He came on staff with us, and we were blessed to have him for a season. He led our, our middle school ministry specifically. Well, the thing I knew about Dylan that a lot of our kids didn't was that Dylan, uh, when he was younger, was a really good skater, like skateboarding. Um, so years later, he comes back on staff, and it's one Friday. It's one of his first Fridays that he's here with the youth group that's gathering, and I'm on my way out for the day, and there's Dylan, and he had, you know, uh, he's kind of an old soul, if you know Dylan. So he was dressed with khakis, I think like loafers, a button-down shirt. He's tucked in, uh, you know, just... Uh, so he's here at church, the kids are gathering, and it's before the actual service, and a group of the younger boys are skating in our carport, and they're trying to do their little tricks, ollies, and these things, and so as I'm walking out, Dylan walks out with me, and he sees them, and he says to one of the kids, hey, can I try? And, and this kid, kind of with a half eye roll and a smirk, is like, yeah, I guess so, hands him his board. Well, again, I, I know what they don't know, so I stop, and I'm going to watch this, and sure enough, there's Dylan in his khakis and his button down, looking like an old man. Uh, on his first attempt, does this amazing like 360, you know, kick, flip, shove it thing, and 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 he lands it, and uh, and he won the hearts of those junior high boys, like right, right there. They they like were shocked and amazed and applauded. They're like, do it again, do something else, and uh, you know he's incredible. I'm like, hey, my my turn, my turn, and so. I shocked them as well. They called the ambulance. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, be careful, right? We, we can, that happens. We can, you know, misjudge people just based upon initial appearance. And it's here in this passage in James that God, through James, is telling us uh, this very thing. We, we have to be careful that as the body of Christ, as Christians, we do not want to be guilty of passing judgment on someone just by their mere outward appearance, by superficial things. That, you know, we don't get to know the character of the person and who they are, and so that we should not be doing that. Now, the fact that he's writing this leads us to believe that this was a message that was needed for this group of believers, and gang, it, it's needed for us in our world and culture and time today as well. I don't think I need to convince you uh, that the world that we live in and the culture that we find ourselves in, at least from my observation, I think you would agree, seems to be quicker to judge people than ever before. 
and not just judge a person, but condemn them all in one motion. They make a, a, a judgment and they make a condemnation, and there seems to be little to no effort to have any kind of civil conversation, uh, discussion of ideas, uh, any kind of just respectful debate or honest consideration of another person, another position, uh, another idea. And along with that, we find that, man, all of a sudden we live in a world that loves labels. They're just labeling everything, all upon assumptions and appearance. And sadly, that, those labels often are just the, an all or nothing deal. It seems as though there's no variation, there's no room for discussion, dialogue's cut off, community is cut off. Now, if you've been on the receiving end of that, you know how it feels, right? No, I don't think anybody likes to be judged, and certainly not wrongly, you know, things wrongly assumed about you just by a superficial or initial or outward appearance. Right? We, we all want someone at least... Get to know me first, then you can say you don't like me. <laughs> but it's sad, because this is the, that's the reality of the world that we live in. And, and it promotes then, it perpetuates divisiveness, exclusivity. We find you know, people are just tribal, in the, you know, and it breeds hate and prejudice and mistrust. And the culture of the world, and the ways of the world, made its way into the mindset of the early church, hence why James is writing this. And gang, that breach still exists for us today, and we have to be very, very mindful of it. And so James addresses a form of discrimination here in this chapter. We're, we're going to look at it, what specifically meant for them, and, and take the principle and expand it a little bit, you know, uh, the other areas of, of our life and our walk with the Lord. So, with that, I draw your attention back to just that first introductory phrase in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, my brethren. Now, we, we've seen him uh, address them this way several times before. And uh, let me just pause for a second. James, the letter of James overall at times is going to be a letter that will uh, get in our face. That James will have some hard things for us to read and hear and certainly for his original audience. But James, as much as he wants to get to the nitty-gritty, uh, he's also gracious. And so he peppers his uh, strong exhortation along the way. He inserts a reminder of, uh, of a loving relationship, affirmation that they are family. And essentially, James is saying, listen, I, I'm writing these things. They're going to be hard for you to hear, but I, it's because I love you and I care for you. And, and we're family in Christ. And because we're family in Christ, there are going to be some things that you, you're not going to like to hear, but it's for your good. And, and before we've talked about this, this is something that's needed for all of us to speak, and I'll add this, and to receive truth spoken in love. Because there's going to be times where we won't like what we hear. It's going to grate against us. It's going to seem like it's going to challenge our worldview. It's going to uh, step on our toes, if you will. And, and we're not going to like what we hear, but if we're willing to 
allow ourselves to be humble and teachable and receive it. Listen, God wants to grow us. And so there are times where, man, it's going to be hard to hear, but it's because of God's love for us. Now, what does he say to them? My brethren, again, in verse 5, he's going to call them my beloved brethren. He's reaffirming this. He says, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Here's the direction. Another translation reads, show no partiality or favoritism as you hold the faith. Of course, the fact that he addresses them, my brethren, the fact that he's talking about those who hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's speaking to the church. He's speaking to believers. He is saying to you and to me as followers of Christ, we have no business showing favoritism discrimination, preferential treatment to anybody. And again, I, he, he addresses this probably because it was an issue and a temptation that the early church was falling into. That they lived in a time and a culture, as we do today, that elevated, that esteemed the powerful, the wealthy, the influential, those with political power. They lived in a time and culture, and it's still true today, that reveres people with rank, celebrates celebrities. It gives preference to those with power and position. And often it's those people that have then privilege and platform. And just by those factors alone, And we see that played out in our world today. Politicians, celebrities, who uh, seem to play by a different set of rules. Right? They, they have a whole different standard in which they operate by, and they're above the law, or their own actions seem to be hypocritical, or they might uh, you know, put into law certain guidelines, uh, directives, and yet they themselves don't even abide by the same laws that they are enacting. And so society then, and it's the same as society today, elevates those type of people. And that mindset has a tendency. It's a danger. It can bleed into then the way that we operate within the body of Christ. And James is saying that's not good. Now please understand there's nothing wrong with uh, being successful there's no indictment against those who have rank or have wealth or have political influence. That's not the point. God isn't shaming that person just because they've been blessed in that way. And, and certainly we're not called to do that either. And by the way, there, there's actually a place for sanctified honor. God tells us to give honor where honor is due. God tells us to... to uh, you know, be in submission to those who are in authority above us. So there, there's a sanctified place for that. In fact, there's even a place where God tells us for those who shepherd our, you know, our souls, we're to give double honor to those. And so there's a place for that. And, but even in that, there's loving limits and boundaries that God sets. We don't want to, uh, you know, transgress that and get out of bounds even with the way that we honor people who speak into our lives. But the point that 
James is making is that we, we shouldn't play favorites. We shouldn't show preference or the converse. We shouldn't be discriminatory against others or have a bias against them based upon what they look like, what they appear like, or even what they actually have, any affluence they may have. Well, we can absolutely expect the world to operate that way because that's the, world, that's the way the world operates. But we can't bring that junk into church with us. We should not operate that way. I have a good pastor friend who's very aware of how the world operates, and he leverages it. Uh, he's often told me that anytime he flies, he'll show up at the airport and he will, he'll put on a suit, like nice tie and a nice suit and dress shoes, and he'll go check in that way. And I'm, telling, I, I'm like, why do you do that? He says, oh, more often than not, I get bumped up to business class just by me showing up in a suit. And he's from Hawaii. Mm-hmm. I'm, like, I'm like, all power to you, Tim. I'm not doing that. I'm going to just show up my flip-flops and my shorts and my travel shirt a can of Pringles and some pocky sticks. That's the way I operate, you know. I've never been bumped up. <laughs> That's the, world, the, way, the way the world operates. But James says, listen, if we call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, notice we hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord. The idea of our relationship with him. He's our leader. He's our master. He's our God. We're to follow his example. And he gives us a great example on how we are to treat others. It's declared of God over and over again, both Old and New Testament alike, that God is not a respecter of person. That the nature, let me say it this way, if the nature and the character of God holds no partiality to anyone or anything outwardly, then we as the followers of God, right? we as the believers of Christ, should do the same. We shouldn't have any partiality. And when we get our eyes on the Lord, and it's been said, when you look up to Jesus, you won't look down on others. And it is to remember the idea that He is the Lord of glory. When we see Him, it allows us to see others in a proper place. And there's no room then. There becomes no room for any type of of distinction or judgment or evaluation. Because ultimately, when you and I come to the foot of the cross, the Bible says we all fall short of the glory of God. When we come to the foot of the cross, it's level ground. We all come the same. Sinners in need of a Savior. And so we can look to the Lord. I encourage you, this week, this, in this you know, couple weeks, like, take some time and just follow the example. Read through the Gospels and watch how Jesus interacted with people around him. How the, our Lord, in all of his majesty, and who he was, and yet how he treated other people with kindness and compassion and dignity and value and worth and respect. And we'll see there's no room for any kind of personal favoritism. There's so many examples. Let me just give you a couple. In John chapter 4, Jesus encounters this uh, a Samaritan woman at, at a well. The disciples had gone into town. They're, you know, 
they go to Family Mart, they're going to buy something to eat. And there Jesus is, and here comes this, this a woman, the Samaritan woman. And if you know the account, J- Jesus engages her. He's the one who initiates conversation. And historically, the background is Jews and Samaritans didn't like each other. They had some beef. They had some history. And even beyond that, culturally speaking, for a, a Jewish rabbi, even for them to speak to women, that was a little bit of a cultural taboo. And so here comes a Samaritan woman who shows up, and Jesus engages her. And even for her, her response is, how is it that you, being a Jew, are going to talk to me? And yet he engages her, shares the gospel in a sense with her, How often we find the Lord who just crossed ethnic, racial, traditional boundary lines for the sake of God's love, for the sake of the gospel. In fact, this isn't in my notes, so I've got to let Yoko, who's translating in Japanese, kind of know to follow me a little. Ready? So in Luke chapter 9, there's this account where Jesus and the disciples are going to go to Jerusalem. And uh, they're in the north. And so they either have to travel around the area of Samaria or go through it. Well, they try to go through. And we're told that some villagers in Samaria gave them the boo-boo, like, you're not coming through. We don't want your types here. Get out. And so it was the Samaritans who told them, no, we don't want you. And so they bypassed that. Well, it makes specifically John and James kind of angry. Rightly so, the sons of thunder, a little bit of a hotheads. And so you know the account? They go to Jesus and they're like, hey, you want us to call down fire like Elijah did? We will go take care of these guys. Remember that account? So funny. As if they could, right? They're like, you want us to, you know, they're like the hitmen. We'll take care of these guys for you, you know. Jesus is like my paraphrase. You're crazy. I, we didn't come to this. We came to save people, not destroy them. That's Luke 9. Luke 10, say just one chapter later, Jesus is having this conversation with the religious leaders. They make their way to Jerusalem, and they begin to talk about love and a neighbor. And Jesus says, okay, let me give you the story. This guy gets, it's going to be my paraphrase, so bear with me. This guy gets mugged, he gets beaten up, he's left on the road, half dead. Here comes a priest, shines the guy. Here comes a Levite, passes by. And, he, and here's what Jesus says, here comes a Samaritan. Well, that, that get their attention. Here comes a Samaritan, and the Samaritan stops and helps the guy and, and blesses him, right? Takes him, says, hey, I'll pay the guy's bill. You know what we know that parable as? The Good Samaritan. Why do we call it the Good Samaritan? Because Jesus elevated that, right? I mean, we have Good Samaritan laws. We have Samaritan's Purse. There's a Good Samaritan hospital here in Okinawa. Samaritans uh, and the Jews didn't get a It's because the Lord elevated them. 
cross these cultural lines, cross these ethnic lines. Man, Jesus was a maverick of his day. He was radical in the things that he did, the things that he said. And it did not bother him at all to, uh, to break through these barriers, ingrain different barriers, ethnic, race, economical, even political. It didn't matter. To the outcasts, to the downcast, Jesus would minister. To the upper crust, to the influential. Jesus touched a leper. He ate with tax collectors. He engaged with the, the Roman officers. In fact, he even gave one of the greatest accolades he could give to anybody of a Roman officer. He says, I haven't found such faith in all of Israel than this guy. Shocking. It was radical. Radical life and radical love. And if Jesus operated that way, gang, guess what? We should operate the same way. He showed love for those who rejected, those who refused. He had compassion on, on the marginalized. When society said, we don't want nothing to do with them, for whatever reason, their sickness, their spiritual condition, their state of mind, the helpless, the powerless, and even the sinner. Now, we have to qualify this because Jesus ministered and loved them, accepted them, but understand he did not endorse or excuse uh, nor accept their sin. Many times he'd say, and go and sin no more. Call them to repentance. So even in his love, it wasn't a, a love that endorsed or excused sinful lifestyles. But he didn't exclude them. Right? Love, love called them out of sin and into liberty, away from their sin and into life with the Father. Sometimes, even today, I think Christ, Christians are mischaracterized. I think the world around us thinks, oh, Christianity is, uh, is prejudice or bias. I'd say they're terribly mistaken. The gospel, the message of the gospel, Christianity, I think, historically, of course, you know, not perfect. There are records of horrible things as well, but it's the gospel, though. Liberated all of the marginalized. We just read even how James says, oh, here's God's heart for the widow and for the orphan. Liberated women, children, gave worth and value to those at the lowest part of society, the orphan and the widow, the outcast. Dignity to the handicapped and the sick. Again, another quick example. It's Luke 8. It's that an exchange where Jesus is going with uh, to Jairus' house. He's going to heal his daughter. You remember that account? The woman with the blood issue. If you know cultural and Jewish practices, because she had this blood issue that made her ceremonially unclean, she wasn't allowed to go and worship. 
And so she was considered just an outcast of society. And remember, her mindset is, I just need to touch his garment. That's all I need to do. And so in this mob of people, she makes her way, trying to be discreet, trying to be incognito, and she goes and she just grabs his garment. That's all she needs. And when she does, Jesus, it says Jesus perceived power had left him. And he kind of stops the whole parade, and he's like, hey, somebody touched me. Remember the disciples' response, like, hey, we're kind of in a mosh pit. Everybody's touching you. And I, and I love the interaction because he stops and he's looking around and he's like, who touched me? And then he, then he sees the lady. In my mind's eye, they lock eyes and then he calls her out. But he doesn't call her out to embarrass her. Well, it might have been embarrassing initially. Like, oh, she got busted, right? But you remember the account when he engages her in front of everybody? He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Like, he, what endearing term. What, what a beautiful acknowledgement of the worth and the value of this lady. And I suggest to you that he does that publicly to elevate her publicly. To show everybody, listen, she, she is of value. And that is what Jesus does. That's what the gospel does. Romans 2.11 says, there is no partiality with God. And so gain anything for us that we would label, that we would judge or prejudge, especially people by the color of their skin, the language they speak, the passport they hold. We'll add in the car that they drive, the clothes that they wear, anything outward, their height, their weight, anything. God, God is against it. And we should be too. The early church had to fight against these learned, ingrained prejudices. And maybe for you, you've come from a, a place, your family of origin, or community, and that's just been part of what you've known and learned, and yet that, that's not what God's called us into. I mean, even for Peter, the early disciples, as good Jews, there were certain cultural things they had to be brought out of. In the book of Acts, we read about one of them. Peter is on the roof, and he has this kind of daydream vision. This giant sheet comes down, and there's all these different animals on it. And then God, or, um, yeah, God speaks. Peter hears the voice of the Lord and tells Peter, Peter, arise, kill, and eat. But on this sheet, like a giant tortilla, there's all kinds of different animals to include unclean animals. So my, it doesn't say specifically, I imagine there's probably a pig on there. So God's saying, listen, you can have you know, bacon now. And if you know the account, Peter pushes back a little bit. Not so, Lord. I've been, I've been good. I'm, I'm kosher. And then God tells Peter, don't, Peter, listen, don't call unclean what now I have said is clean. But that vision wasn't just that Peter can now have soaky soba or, you know, get a bacon cheeseburger. Praise the Lord for the gospel of grace, right? <laughs> the point of the illustration 
was it was, you guys ready? I made a joke. My kid said, don't say it, Dad. I'm going to say it. It was a metaphor. You like it? All the dads are, yeah. It's a metaphor for Peter to drop his cultural bias against the non-Jew. Because right after, guys show up and they say, hey, God tells them, you're going to go to Cornelius' house. You're going to step foot into a Gentile, by the way, a Roman officer of the people group that's occupying and oppressing your country. And you're going to go there. And Peter does. He has to fight against what he has learned. And then here's what he says. As he watches God minister to this this man and his family, he says, now I know God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. God plays no favorites. And he welcomes all those who would fear him. We're going to unpack this a little bit more. Because even in that example, there are times when we see people and we're tempted to judge them based upon their appearance or what we assume about them. But we have no idea how God's working in their life. We have no idea of what's happened to them. Their story, their background, their baggage, their hurts and their wounds. And how God might be ministering them or how God wants to use you to be the agent to minister grace to them. And it was a problem, one of the first potential problems in the early church. Again, the book of Acts, chapter 6, we're told that in those days, the number of disciples are increasing, the church is beginning to grow, and all of a sudden, here comes a problem. And the first problem seemed to be along an ethnic line. The Hellenistic Jews were beginning to complain against the, uh, the local Jews. So those that were from kind of the outer, uh, you know, Greek speakers were complaining against the Hebrew guys and saying, hey, our widows are being mistreated. There's some disparity about how our people are being taken care of. And so they address the problem. They go and pray and they say, all right, there's some practical things the church needs to do and some spiritual things. But the point I want to make is that the first initial big problem could have been a, a, a racial one, an ethnic one. And how the world, and I would even say the enemy of our soul, loves to try to divide us and divide people along those natural lines. We see that played out. And sadly, it, it makes its way into the church sometimes. Along racial, ethnic socioeconomic lines. And it's a tactic that the enemy still uses today. And and, and we as a church, the Bible says we have to be uh, strive for the unity of peace and the bond of love. It means we have to be vigilant to reject it and fight against it. Let's just make it a little more local. Let's just talk our own family here. There are a lot of different lines in which our church could be carved. And the enemy would love to divide us that way, along natural lines. Well, there's, 
we're not just only Okinawan or Japanese and American. There are other ethnicities part of our church, other languages that are our mother tongue, passports that we hold. Our, our church uniquely, we, we have a lot of military and non-military. That'd be a line that could divide us. I mean, even within the military, you guys, sometimes there's family-friendly uh, banter between the different branches. Right? But even there's a subset of that. There's the officer enlisted. From that grouping, there's senior and junior. You think about all the different things that could, you know, married and single, families and not families yet, kids, or I should say kids and not kids yet, homeschoolers and not homeschoolers, Some of them, you know, people that are tatted and untatted. There's a lot of different things. There's a group of you that actually like cocoa curry. And, and the rest of us that still have our taste buds intact. Like that, that, that's a potential dividing line, right? And, and yet when we come to the body of Christ, when we look at the gospel, when we look at the cross of Jesus... It's, it's his word that provides this glorious principle for us to embrace and practice that uh, we need to reject, reject you know, um, discrimination, partiality, favoritism. But on the converse of that, we are to embrace that and treat everyone with dignity, equally, respect, and love. And that's based on who we are. We're all created in the image of God. Each of us is a unique expression, reflection of our creator God. We said over the years, you know, we're, we're like a kaleidoscope of God's creation. Different colors and shapes and shades and sizes. And God puts us together to be this beautiful mosaic of the body of Christ. And, and gang, listen. God does not call us then to deny our differences. We, we can absolutely acknowledge them. So we're not called to deny them, but we're, we're called to display them. You know, unity doesn't equal uniformity. That we all have to be the same and look the same and sound the same. There can be unity through diversity. And that's what the body of Christ should be. If any place on planet earth should reflect an example, what does love and genuine community look like amongst a diversity of people? The body of Christ should be that. Glorious. <laughs> Glorious is what it should look like. We get to be a facet of God's glory as we celebrate diversity, not segregate over it. We certainly don't need to ignore it. And we embrace it and we let God use it. And what happens? We get to be a preview of heaven. The Bible says that in the choir of heaven, every tongue, tribe, and nation are going to be worshiping the Lord. Now I've often wondered, like, oh, there seems to be even... I wonder if we're going to carry some of our distinction when we get to heaven. Glorified and yet every tongue, tribe, and nation worshiping the Lord. 
That was a lot in verse 1. James provides the specific illustration of this. He says, don't do that. And he says, because, listen, here's a scenario. If someone comes into your assembly, he uses the word synagogue, it just means where they gathered as a believer, a church, a group where us as followers of Christ are. If a person comes, a man comes with gold rings, fine clothes, and then also comes in a poor person in filthy clothes. Here's the example. Two guys dressed very different. And then yet, we pay attention to the one that has the rings and the fine clothes, and we say, oh, hey, sit right here. We have the best seat for you. And then we turn to the person that's disheveled and they're dirty. They're like, ah, you should sit in the back or maybe sit right here near me so I can keep my eye on you right here at my footstool on the ground. James makes an indictment from that example. Haven't you shown partiality? Aren't you judging with evil thoughts? Now again, the scenario is easy for us to understand. A person comes into the church and they look like they have a lot of money. They seem to be dressed nice. They have gold rings and nice clothes. My kids call that drip. I'm like, they don't say bling anymore? And my, my son's like, don't say bling, you're so old. <laughs> drip. They're dripped out. I don't know. You know, the modern equivalent would be similar to someone dresses in designer clothes, they got the latest high-end you know, tech fashion, they got expensive shoes on, and you see them, you're like, oh yeah, look at that, that guy's got money. Which is amazing to me too, by the way, especially regarding shoes. Like some of you know, like I, I used to work for Nike for a number of years and you know, enjoyed my season there as an operations manager and, and uh, watched different launches of shoes, but where the culture of shoes have gone now, it is surprising and shocking. You know this? Like people buy and sell sneak, like Nikes even specifically, like they trade stocks. And, and, and not just hundreds, not just thousands, like tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands for a pair of shoes. You know the most expensive Nike shoes ever purchased? You don't know? I know, because I looked it up. You ready? <laughs> Kanye West, 2008, he wore these Nike Air Yeezy uh, prototypes to the Grammys. One of a kind. $1.8 million someone paid for them. $1.8 million. Crazy. Again, Listen, nothing wrong with dressing nice. Don't be like, oh no, I can't wear Nikes to church anymore. No, I'm not saying that. <laughs> not saying that. And even if they, you paid a lot of money for them, hey, to the glory of God. But James isn't, James isn't addressing or condemning the person wearing the clothes. He's not saying, like, how dare they walk in with their gold and these things. That's not the, that's not the case. And as an aside, the Bible doesn't really have a lot to say about what we wear. There's some passages in terms of we want to be modest. Uh, you know, we certainly don't want to stumble anybody and come to worship the Lord and we allow our attention to be on God. And I would argue that God's more concerned about your heart than what your shirt looks like. Um, and so 
I mean, you guys know it for us. Like, you want to wear flip-flops and shorts and T-shirt? Go for it. You want to wear a suit? You want to dress up? Go for it. To the glory of God. Uh, it, it, the illustration, though, the point is that how we treat, though, the person as we see them walking in, what they're wearing, what they drive. And so the, the disparity, the difference of our treatments, someone who looks like they have money to this person who uh, seems like they do not because of their appearance. Now, James's example is specific in terms of money and monetary we, again, we can, we can apply that across the board. And so if we're giving preferential treatment based upon outward appearance, God plainly just tells us it's wrong. In fact, James will come back to the point in verse 9 and say, if you do that, you've committed sin. Just plainly. He's addressing this because this happens. And we understand, right? It, it, it's, it's easy to give special attention to people who uh, seem like they have wealth and seem like they have importance. And yet what James will bring us to, and we'll unpack more uh, next week, is we have no idea what's happening on the inside. what type of person they are. Because their outward appearance has, is not an indicator of their inward spiritual state. What God is doing, how God is working. We have no clue of their character, their, their, their morality by wardrobe alone, and yet we can be guilty of making a judgment based upon what we think or see about a person. Because ultimately, God sees us all the same, right? We are all equally impoverished. We're all spiritually bankrupt. And our, and our value and our worth and our treasure, if you will, our riches come in Christ and Christ alone. You know, he's already addressed that back in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. That true worth and true value is spiritual. But here, I want to make a, I want to camp for a, a little bit on this point. And wealth is not an indicator of faith. Wealth is not an indicator of faith. And yet, it's sad to me that there are churches and ministries and even a movement that would attach monetary material gain and wealth and say, if you really love the Lord, if you're really close to God, then you're going to be rich. That's false. And they add into that often that if you really love the Lord, then you're, you're not going to get sick. That also is false. The health and wealth prosperity gospel and those who promote that, it's wrong. It's not biblical. It's unbiblical to say the more faith that you have, the more money that you have or the closer to God that you are, the more financial success you'll experience. Again, we can you just go to Scripture. You look at the life of Jesus. He himself would say, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. When he was born, he was born in a borrowed 
place in a borrowed manger. He worked with his hands. When he died, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. And so, gang, we we have to be careful that we don't associate financial standing or the appearance of it as an indicator of, of a person's faith or their spiritual influence. Don't do that for somebody else, and, and don't, don't, don't do that for yourself. It's tempting to do. Right? We're, we're tempted to, to evaluate our uh, faith. We're tempted to evaluate our effectiveness based upon material assets. And it happens. I mean, even with churches, sadly, even with pastors, sometimes they'll go places and they'll say, well, how big is your church? How big is your building? How big is your budget? And I just say, oh, we're a happy handful. The metric's wrong. You want to know how loving my church is? Our church. How deep are our roots growing? How faithful are we to what God's called us to? Those are the metrics, right? When we get to heaven, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we want to hear. The disciples made this mistake. Jesus said, hey, I want you to take care of this this group of people. Feed the 5,000. They looked at what what little they had. They said, ah, we don't have the resources. What are these amongst so many? It was a matter of limitation of resource. It's, were they going to be obedient to what God called them to do? And again, that bleeds into even how we relate to the Lord ourselves. I can't do that. I don't have a lot. No, God didn't ask you what you had. God just told us to go and do this by faith. And so success in God's eyes, it's not measured by uh, the size of your paycheck. Your worth, we talked about this before, your worth isn't uh, how much savings you have. That's the world standards. And yet we've allowed the world standards to hijack ours. Think, oh, I'm not a homeowner. I don't have that type of car. I don't have this type of savings. I must be less than. Says who? (laughs) Says the world. And so here James brings us to just this indictment, verse 4. Have you not shown partiality amongst yourselves and you become judges with evil thoughts? Now when we hear that word evil, we think really bad. We have to understand, it's bad to the Lord. It goes against God's nature and God's heart. It's an affront to His character. And he says, and when we operate this way, Oh, we're, we're judging with evil thoughts. And the, you know, the, the evil intention, the evil thoughts is that favoritism, when we show it, it, it really reveals a deeper heart issue. It reveals what we, what we adore and what we aspire to, what we bring, what, what values we hold in our life. And so if that's the case, if we're valuing what the world values, the outward wealth, and these things, then, again, James says it's sin, so we just need to repent. Discrimination of any kind has no place in the body of Christ. The color of our skin, I'm going to add these things, you ready? Our political party affiliation, 
Yes, we can be guilty of that too, right? Someone says, oh, I'm of this particular political party, and automatically ascribe a whole subset of uh, thoughts to them. Don't do it. Financial status, the shoes that you wear, the clothes that you wear, the car that you drive. I'll add another one that's pertinent to idea. Your vaccination status. None of those things, as far as judging people, belongs in the church. Not for the holders of faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. See, God cares about how you and I treat other people. And ultimately, when we then have the right view of God, of who the Lord is, it will give us the right view of others to be able to look at other people through the eyes of the Lord. And that's where James will bring us. Gang, regardless of outward appearance, every person is worthy of dignity, respect, kindness, compassion, uh, love. Amen? Amen? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this reminder that as we, as you are, compassionate, kind, loving, how you elevate and give dignity to the marginalized, the disenfranchised. And Lord, at times, intentionally so. God, I pray that we would, we would emulate that. That we wouldn't um, certainly not be about any type of favoritism, snobbery, Jesus even gave the example about how when someone has an event that shouldn't even just invite the people that can pay them back, but to minister and give and bless those who have less. Lord, I, I pray that we would put these things into practice, that we be mindful of how we might, of our own tendencies to prejudge someone just upon our first appearance, what we, what we sometimes think or assume about somebody. God, help us to drop that. Take the time to talk and learn and do life together. And, or even as we're reminded... Peter and Cornelius, Lord, we don't know what you're doing in that person's life. We don't know their history, their baggage, their wounds, what you are doing and have done in their life. And so, Lord, we don't want to be guilty of judging others. And Lord, perhaps you even want to use us to be a minister of grace and love and acceptance of change. And so, Lord, we thank you for uh, your scripture, these examples, this exhortation. We pray and ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen.